Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. Of course, my co-host David Blackman will be joining me momentarily. But before I bring him on, I wanted to talk to you quickly about our latest issue of Shell Magazine. You know, it is dedicated to women in the energy industry, the November-December issue, in which the cover is Myrtle Jones, Vice President of Halliburton. And she has an amazing story of determination, drive, a wonderful education, and a superstar when you read her story. I encourage you to go to shalemag.com, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com, and read all about Myrtle and, of course, all the other interesting articles that are inside of the November-December issue of Shell Magazine. And speaking of Shell Magazine, I'd also like to encourage our listeners to contact us if you are interested in getting the new 2021 media kit. You know, it's the holidays and we're all enjoying time with our family and friends. But I would also like to mention that it's also a great opportunity for us to sit and back for a little bit and think about how we are going to start the new year off right for our businesses. If you are wanting to market to the oil and gas, I encourage you to visit shellmag.com and request a media kit in which you will find all of the editorial content that is scheduled for 2021. And it also will give you an opportunity to think about how you're going to advertise your company to the oil and gas sector or to the general public. For more information on a media kit or to learn more about Shell Magazine and how you can advertise with them, please go to shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and request a media kit. And now it's time to welcome on my co-host, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It's fabulous weather here in uh, our neck of the woods. I agree with you. David, as we're closing out 2020 and it's finally coming to a close, I'm sure everyone is saying, please, just let's shut 2020 and hope for the best for 2021. But in all seriousness, do you think that we have ever, the oil and gas sector has ever seen a worse year than, I mean, I'm sure they have a long, long, long time ago, but in modern times, have they ever had to endure something like what they're enduring right now? Not in this century, I don't think. Uh, I, I think you, you can go back to 1985 and, and compare those two years. I lived through that bust as well. I was in the industry, and yeah, which just shows you how old I am. But, um, you know, uh, other than that year. You're only uh, as old as you feel, buddy. You're only as old as you feel. Right. Yeah. I mean, even the oil embargo years in the 70s were and not I remember that one. That one was a terrible. bad one. Yeah. They were terrible for people, but they weren't really that bad for the oil and gas industry. But this year has just been awful. Um, you know, first you have the OPEC plus deal collapsing on March 4th. And then a few days later, all the restrictions on COVID-19 started going into effect and the price just completely collapsed. And then the industry has been trying to recover ever since. Not to mention well, you have I, I the bad PR on the other side of climate right. change. And, and so they're dealing with all oh, of them. Yeah. Shut them down, anti-fracking. Uh, right, and, and the election orders. outcome, uh, you know, is if it holds, uh, could not, uh, at least in terms of the presidency, was a really bad outcome for the industry as well. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see how the runoff elections in Georgia go on January 5th and uh, go from there. You know, it's a resilient industry. Uh, 
one thing about on gas people is is they're resilient they're tough creative they're tough and they have to be tough to be in this business there you go well i'm going to take us on a little bit more of an upbeat which is 2021 we've seen a little somewhat of a nice recovery both in ray count and oil prices over the past couple of weeks yeah 2021 uh one thing i love about having you as my co-host is you are not afraid to pull out your crystal ball so pull it out and tell us what do you see uh, for 2021? Will this continue? Uh, obviously, it'll go up and down to some degree, but are we going to repeat 2020 in any form? Well, yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm going to assume a Biden-Harris presidency um, uh, in answering this question. Um, you know, we'll see how that all works out. But, you know, 2021 is, uh, I think, will be for the oil and gas business a another difficult year. It won't be nearly as bad as 2020 has been. It'll certainly be better than that. But, you know, I mean, uh, prices, uh, I think, will rise somewhat throughout the year. Overall, at the end of the year, a year from today, I expect we'll see West Texas intermediate prices somewhere in the 50s rather than in the mid 40s and and so that will be an improvement i think the rig count certainly in the first half of the year will continue to rise because more and more companies are profitable and and can afford to drill new wells uh, at these price levels so i you know from that standpoint i think it'll be good but you know you're going to have to deal with a a hydraulic fracturing ban on federal lands and federal waters right. uh, from day one. More regulations coming their way. Right, and, and a lot more regulations coming from the federal government. Uh, and and unfortunate, I think, uh, re-entry of the, the country into the Iran nuclear deal, which will uh, certainly be met with joy in Tehran, but uh, will be really bad uh, for the oil and gas industry, not just here, but globally because you'll end that embargo on Iranian exports. So it's going to be a difficult year, but it's going to be better. Not spectacular, but we're, we're, yeah, we're treading water now. Uh, So Western Intermediate, you're saying, will be somewhere around 50. 50, 55 is what I'm thinking. Um, It'll go up and down during the year for sure, just like it it always does. But but I just think the the, uh, macroeconomic dynamics are – going to remain positive for the industry because uh, we've seen strong demand recovery in Asia, Europe, and even in the United States, even with all these COVID restrictions in place. So I just think that the macroeconomic situation is is much better for the industry than it was seven or eight months ago. Well, so that's good news. And let's keep going with good news because right now the rig count is sitting at around 330 active rigs in the United States, uh, which is up. Uh, again, 2020, get out. 2021, hello, welcome in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but where do you expect the rig count to go also in 2021? How much of an increase yeah. do you think we'll have there? So, you know, I mean, the great thing is we've had about a 40% increase in the rig count just in the last two months. And, uh, well, three months, um, which is great. And uh, But we have to remember that was from a near all-time low of under 200. Right. So you had, it was pretty easy to go up from there. But still... That's a, that's a pretty dramatic improvement in such a short period of time. And, and I do think it'll continue in the first half of 2021. There's a lot of pit up, you know, these engineers and geologists in these oil companies really want to drill wells. And the executives that run those businesses, they, they're there to drill wells. And so there's a, a real pent up tension within these companies to, you know, put together 
as big a drilling budget as they can for the first half of next year. So I suspect January we'll see a, a pretty significant increase. increase in the rig count, maybe 50 to 70 rigs even. See, I told you this month. is going to be a positive show, this this show yeah. on what we're looking at. Yeah. Uh, but maybe <laughs> this next question, uh, <laughs> Biden-Harris administration the energy policies moving forward. What are we going to see there if uh, they are elected? Oh, well, it's it's going to be polar opposite from what we've had the last four years. It'll be a return to the last two years of, of the Obama-Biden administration uh, with just myriad different uh, command and control regulatory processes happening. Mm -hmm. uh, a day one executive order to ban hydraulic fracturing on federal lands as I said earlier, re-entry into the Iran uh, nuclear deal and probably a re-entry into the, <laughs> the Paris Climate Accords, which is, you know, just a wealth redistribution deal where, where the United States is going to put in $100 billion a year and all the other countries are going to take it. And nobody's going to cut their emissions except the United States of America, which, by the way, is the only country on Earth, as we sit here today, that's already met its its emissions reduction goals under that agreement through 2025. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're already there. And meanwhile, emissions in China continue to go up. In India, they continue to go up. All across Europe, they continue to go up. We're the only country doing anything on that front. But we're going to pay for for everybody else. To You're do right. Anything. And and let's think about it. So we're we're already at where we should be in accordance with the Paris Climate Accord. But yeah. I guess. You know, to give a visual to the li our listeners, David, is if we have such a problem as climate change, I'm not saying we don't, I'm not saying we, we, we do not. I'm saying, though, we do live on one planet. So picture, so one part of the planet is doing their job in reducing their emissions and working very hard and diligently to not pollute the planet. But on the other side of the planet are, you know, little buzz cutters just going 90 to nothing, just, you know, polluting away. And so on a visual, how do we accomplish stopping this so-called climate change if, like you said a moment ago, these other countries well, that are far worse polluters on the planet yeah. than the United States and our drillers, how are we going to do that and uh, how are we going to prevent climate change? So, so my thought is people need to wake up and recognize that we need to focus on the entire world. And if you exclude them, then the Paris Climate Accord means nothing, correct? Yeah. It right. I mean, we, we have to look at how the United States has already met these goals. Except for we've free money. It. Free money but, to well, countries. We, well, we've, we've met, we've reduced our emissions in the United States mm -hmm. by retiring coal plants and replacing them with natural gas plants. 85% of the retired coal capacity over the last decade has been replaced with natural gas. The other 15% with renewables and other sources. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do, the only way to actually globally, I mean, we're all breathing the same air. That's right. The only way to do this globally is to have China stop building a new coal plant every week. Every week, yes. And replace their existing coal plants with natural gas plants because natural gas is the only fuel source, the only power source mm -hmm. that is capable of doing that. It's, it's, it's the only one that's scalable to the, to the point of being able to replace these big coal plants. And so... You know, until we get serious and, and into a serious discussion about what can actually work in the real world, not in some fantasy land where AOC lives and Bernie Sanders lives, right. but in the real world, until we it's globally global, have global that situation. discussion, we'll never, we okay. will never 
accomplish this problem. Exactly. So, David, with that, we're going to end the show, uh, but I'm glad our listeners uh, got to hear it. This is exactly why we do the show, is to bring common sense into a very complicated topic, oil and gas. When we yeah, come... to get me all worked up every weekend. <laughs> me too. When we come back from break, <laughs> we're going to be joined by Jason Modulin, the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. You're listening to in the Little Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200-kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. And now, David, it's time to welcome on Jason Modulin, the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, who, by the way, is definitely not a stranger to In the Oil Patch Radio show. Jason, welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio. Kim, it's great to see you and David. We wanted to have a show on, uh, we have a session that's coming up in 2021. Texas only meets every two years, so to get all the state's business done and crammed into one short session for two years is very, very important to the citizens of Texas, especially in uh, the oil and gas. So David and I thought it was important that we get you on the show, and let's really debrief on what you think the oil and gas industry is facing this session, as well as we have COVID going on, the pandemic. How will the legislators respond to visitors? So let's begin with, as they meet, Meet in January. I think the last show we had you on, you said there were 900 bills filed as of right now. And you guys at the Texas Alliance had your eye on some of them. Let's go into detail. What is the oil and gas, the early bills that are being signed? What do you think of the largest interest that you guys have on certain bills and why? Well, thanks, Kim. Uh, Absolutely. Legislation has already started to be filed. It started that week after the election, um, November 9th, and we've seen about a thousand bills filed so far on both the House and Senate side. In total, they should file about 10,000 legislative items. Now, most of those will not pass uh, and will not be signed into law by the governor. But we track a number of them and, and we're currently tracking about two dozen bills. Uh, Some positive, some negative for oil and gas. Uh, Some of the big ones that we're watching right now are proposed tax increases, which we don't think will pass with this uh, conservative Republican legislature and Republican governor. But it's certainly items that we are uh, concerned and worried about. We, We would not want to see tax increases on natural gas producers. And we certainly wouldn't want to see tax increases on in consumers in raising the gasoline tax. Yeah. or in raising cost um, uh, to consumers in their homes and businesses. Uh, it's about 40 days away for the legislative session, which will start in January 12th, uh, 2021. Hey, Jason, um, where do we end up after the election in terms of the balance of power? I know, I think in the Senate it's unchanged, but we, we did have a, a slight change in the, the makeup of the House, correct? What? It was the exact reverse. So we, oh, we lost um, a one Republican senator, Pete Flores, 
um, out That's of San right. Antonio. He'll be replaced by Democrat Roland Gutierrez. Right, uh, right. Roland uh, uh, has been on energy resources for a number of sessions in the House. So he moves over to the Senate. Uh, he, he's very familiar with uh, the Permian Basin and the Eagleford. Um, uh, so we hope to have a partner there in the Senate to, to work with us. Um, Pete was very good to the to the oil and gas industry. So so we hope to continue that uh, relationship in the House. Remarkably, it was unchanged. Uh, there were there were two seats that, that changed position, uh, um, both in the Houston area. Uh, one went from a Democrat back to a Republican and um, uh, and then another uh, held by a Republican for, for quite a while. Um, uh, she was beat by a Democrat. So um, no change in the House. Uh, remarkably, uh, there was lots of anticipation that there would be a blue wave and maybe <laughs> uh, Democrats would even pick up as many as uh, 12 seats. That's what they picked up the, the year before right. uh, the election before, but uh, it didn't happen. Uh, one question I have about we heard the commissioners, especially Commissioner Christian before the session, really kind of going after the energy industry about flaring. Are there any specific bills looking at that specific area, or is it just not going to happen this session? We haven't seen any proposals filed as of yet on that. Um, look, the industry has been very proactive along with the railroad. No, I agree with you. I agree uh, with you. <laughs> but in establishing the Texas Methane and Flaring Coalition, and really we want to be able to tell the positive story of both um, uh regulatory actions that have taken place, but also industry innovation and initiative um, to see flaring and venting reduced. Um, uh, the Railroad Commission this past summer did report on positive signs um, uh, of reduced flaring and venting in the state. Um, we want to see those trends continue. And so the Texas Methane and Flaring Coalition has been very active uh, in, in both working with industry, but also working with our regulators um, to see that trend continue. Some of the proposals that we've heard about in the legislature would be along the lines of tax increases on producers, uh, um, making sure that uh, if they do flare, they would be subject to that tax. Uh, this would be an additional tax on top of uh, the taxes that they already pay. Um, uh, we've also seen some uh, uh, proposals that would limit flaring around um, cities or, or other um, protected classes of property. Um, uh, so those are those are potentially coming. We haven't seen them filed yet. What would they do to, to tax flaring? Would they just basically impose a severance tax on on the volumes of, of natural gas that are flared? That, that's absolutely right. Uh, uh, it would be some portion of severance taxes on gas unsold, which is kind of a, a unique, uh, what is the price of gas unsold? Um, they would have to come up with a rate uh, and a flat dollar amount by which yeah. they would apply to that gas. Um, but we do see uh, those scenarios with some types of uh, uh, mineral holders, uh, in particular state mineral uh, owners uh, with uh, university lands and with the general land office, uh, which do recoup some amount of money from flared gas. Um, uh, so we might see that replicated. Uh, we certainly would not like to see that statewide. Look, flaring's done because it is unavoidable. It is a safety issue. Right. Uh, certainly right. operators don't want to flare beyond uh, what they need to, to clean out that well and, and to get that gas to market. Um, so sometimes it, it's simply unavoidable. And we would like to see that trend reduce uh, with newer technologies employed 
and smarter best practices uh, in the field uh, to retain as much of that gas as possible and get it to market. You know, you're right, Jason. I don't think operators are obviously not doing it just to do it. When we get back from break, I want to get into the topic of COVID and how that's going to affect this session. You're listening to and the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kim Bilotto, wanting to talk to you about how to age gracefully. As a woman, my appearance is important to me. It makes me feel good about myself when I feel I'm taking care of myself. And I have been visiting a woman for many years who has helped me with my wrinkles, my skin's elasticity. And you know, a lot of people think it's really just involving women, but it's not. Many, many men also seek treatments as they see the aging process occurring. I visit Cynthia, my friend of many years, who is a master injector for San Antonio Cosmetic Surgery. I feel very comfortable going going to her and allowing her to just do her work on me. Pick up the phone, call Cynthia, make an appointment and see what she can do for you because it has taken years off of me. So if you want a free consultation with Cynthia, give them a call at 210-641-4320. Again, the number is 210-614-4320. Or you can visit their website at sanantoniocosmeticsurgery.net. Be sure to tell them that Kim within the Oil Patch Radio Show sent you. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jason Modulin, the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, and uh, David, my co-host, myself. We are talking to Jason about this upcoming legislative session and what we can expect in the oil and gas industry. David, I know you have a question on COVID for Jason, so take it away. Yeah, yeah, Jason. Yeah, obviously, we're going to be in a very challenging budget environment in this session you know, thanks largely due to the economic slowdown that COVID-19 created. The legislature is going to have to find ways to balance the budget here, uh, which can either be in the form of revenue increases or in the form of cutting spending or in the form of taking money from the rainy day fund or a combination of all three. What are you hearing so far about uh Number one, the enormity of the of the budget issue, the size of it, and 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 what the legislature this time might be inclined to do to address it. Well, Texas Comptroller Glenn Hager updated lawmakers at the end of November um, that the budget, the next budget, was not going to be as difficult or as bad as he expected it this summer. Um, at the time, he projected a $4.6 billion shortfall for the existing biennium, which would end in August of 2021. They will likely uh, fill that gap with some amount of money from the rainy day fund, as well as savings uh, that they asked each state agency to come up with. Uh, they asked uh, this past summer for a 5% cut uh, in general revenue uh, appropriations to each state agency. Uh, and so that's going to come up with a pretty substantial amount that they'll be able to, to plug that hole with. What's unknown is going into this next year, they made some some pretty large uh, commitments on teacher pay yeah. and on reduced property taxes for schools, uh, somewhere in the tune of $13 billion in increased spending uh, that otherwise was not there two years ago. Uh, how they fill that gap 
uh, remains to be seen. Uh, the comptroller uh, in his address to the legislative budget board said that sales tax receipts were only down 4.8% year over year, which is, is simply remarkable. Sales tax is the primary funder of, of state government uh, followed uh, there by the business tax and then by severance taxes. And severance taxes have certainly been down considerably over this past year. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the the rainy day fund still has a considerable sum in it, some $8.8 billion, uh, which is primarily funded by severance tax dollars from the oil and gas sector. Jason, um, out of curiosity, none of the other bills can be even processed until uh, it's in our, explain to me in the Texas state constitution, is it that we cannot get any of the state's business done until we balance that budget, meaning what you were just talking about has to be dealt with first before they can even get onto any of the new state business, correct? That's that's right in the sense that anything that involves spending money um, has to be done in that budget bill, and that budget bill has to be certified balanced by the state comptroller uh, before it can be signed into law. And so if it is out of balance, if the legislature uh, needed to pass tax increases uh, or make cuts within the existing biennium in order for that budget to balance, those things have to be done first um, before the comptroller can certify it and before the governor can sign it. It is the only constitutional obligation that the legislature has to do uh, each session. Uh, this session's a little bit different because the U.S. Constitution requires <laughs> that they also do redistricting. So, uh, And we're going to get into that of... in the next segment. We're going to get into that because, you know, it only <laughs> happens once every 10 years. And I'm not really sure I'm familiar with how specifically this is done. And just backing up, the first thing that has to happen is they have to deal with balancing the budget for the state of Texas. And then we start moving into the new business, which would be the redistricting of 10 years. And then from there, they can start looking at the rest of the state's business. And we only meet every two years, correct? So this sounds like this ought to be a very fun session. <laughs> Always. <laughs> right. Let's take a break, guys. You're listening to In the Wall Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Do you know what artificial intelligence can do for your operation? It's probably time to find out. With Aspen Tech software, your business can harness the full power of AI to achieve new levels of performance. Aspen Tech's leading edge solutions are a critical part of the world's largest oil and gas, chemical, and engineering companies, helping them improve safety, sustainability, reliability. Drawing on decades of industry experience, Aspen Tech is using AI, machine learning, and predictive analytics to help companies digitally optimize the design, operation, and maintenance of their facilities. Find out how Aspen Tech can help you win tomorrow with the technology of today. Learn more at www.aspentech.com forward slash AI. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jason Modlin, the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. And he is talking to David and I today about 
the upcoming Texas legislators when they meet, which they only meet every two years, what we can expect. And David, I, you know, we have a redistricting happening. It happens only every 10 years. And I know years. comfortable saying that I'm very familiar with how this process would work. I know you have a question for Jason. Go ahead. Yeah, I went through two of these uh, redistricting sessions myself as a lobbyist. So I know they're a lot of fun. I, Jason, I'd like to give you a chance to just kind of explain you know, how that process is going to work in the legislature, what committees are involved, uh, and how much time it, it takes up out of this 140 days that, that we have in this session. So there will be uh, a House and a Senate redistricting committee. Um, uh, so two committees per, per uh, uh, the, the, one committee per chamber, basically. And uh, they generally have quite a few members that they are, are larger committees. Uh, during redistricting sessions, um, and they draw the lines for yeah. every House member, every Senate member, the State Board of Education, and then every congressional district. And, and, and that is the charge that the U.S. Constitution uh, makes of them. Uh, they will receive their data from the U.S. Census Bureau uh, in about March. Um, so for these first two months, it's probably going to be a lot of uh, resolutions, um, but not a lot of activity. Uh, uh, that's kind of a, a factor of, of the state constitution that limits their ability to get work done early. Yeah. And then it's a mad rush from March until June um, uh, when they have to have everything finalized. Um, uh, those maps are always very contentious. Um, oh, it's, boy. It's legislators uh, uh, picking their voters. And, and so, um, uh, one, uh, people are just critical from the outside. But then, two, sometimes uh, due to population changes, it does result in incumbents being paired together. Uh, and, and that sets up the natural fight where they've got to run against each other the next election cycle. Texas yeah. should gain some congressional districts. Um, just with our population growth, uh, it's unclear how much, uh, uh, how many congressional districts will gain, uh, um, but uh, that, that uh, alleviates some of the contention on the congressional maps, uh, but those House and Senate maps and State Board of Education, those, are, those numbers are unchanged. So it's 150 House members and 31 state senators. You know, it really affects everyone. It is important, This uh, what we're doing right now. Are there any areas that are really going to be vulnerable to either losing or gaining that the oil and gas sector has their eyes on, if you will? It's some really important areas. Yeah, we continue to be concerned about West Texas losing representation. Uh, you will probably see uh, at least one representative, maybe even two uh, representatives reduce out of the West Texas delegation. And and I'm including the panhandle in that as well. Um, okay. uh, if you just look at Harris County, Harris County has well over 25 state representatives in that county alone. Uh, all of the landmass west of I-35 um, has less than 22 state representatives, uh, and that includes El Paso. So uh, it's a remarkable amount of difference. Uh, Two-thirds of the landmass of the state is represented by less state representatives than in Harris County alone. Um, and, and that just brings up challenges when um, uh, West Texas, and, and particularly the oil and gas sector, is advocating for roads and infrastructure uh, in parts of the state that it relies on to produce oil and gas, um, it, make, it, it makes for a challenge. 
And is it also fair to say, so if we lose seats, I can see why this would be a problem. We lose seats and they pick them up somewhere in an area that really does not really understand. I I would say it that way. I'm not going to say that they don't, uh, you know, like oil and gas. They probably don't understand the rainy day fund and all of the income that the state gets from uh, the oil and gas sector. So they're very quick to usually want to shut it down or not support the energy industry. Where are we going to pick up seats at? Are they going to be in the urban areas that really just do not have a a great appreciation for all of the funding that oil and gas gives to the state, the teachers, the law enforcement, transportation, roads? We can go on and on and on. The growth is definitely in kind of the golden triangle, I would say, uh, DFW to San Antonio to Houston. Um, That is primarily where, uh, in fact, it's over 80% of our population lives within, um, uh, it's a very uh, uh, close to to those three main highways, 3545 and I-10 between those three points. Uh, And that's just a remarkable uh, amount of population in that area. Um, and hopefully uh, they, they continue to uh, rely on oil and gas to generate tax revenues and they don't come uh, wanting to shut us down or overtax us and, and drive that industry out of the state. You talk about oil and gas revenues, uh, that gets us to the Railroad Commission budget, which is funded almost entirely by fees on the industry and the industry's fees are way down this year because we've quit drilling wells uh, in, in large part. and. Um, that's coming back now, but it's not in time to recover. So what do you see as the big challenges for getting a proper budget for the Railroad Commission in this next session? The Railroad Commission is asking to stay flat with their budget, and that's gonna be a challenge when uh, state agencies are asking to cut a little bit more. Um, uh, What we've seen the Railroad Commission put on the back burner has been trucks, uh, um, and and that's, uh, uh, renewing those trucks and, and, and um, uh, getting the, the proper equipment out to your inspectors um, just runs the risk that that truck breaks down and they're not able to go out and inspect sites. Um, the other thing that they have uh, put on the back burner is some site remediation uh, for sites that um, are not polluting, uh, are not risking human health, but at, at some point will need to be cleaned up. And those are those are older tank batteries um and equipment left in the field um, that unfortunately an operator uh, went bankrupt those are the things that they have put off Um, those are critical functions of the railroad commission and and, and certainly items that we want to see uh, continue but they're items that can be put off for a couple years um, uh, hopefully not uh, uh, for longer than that right let's not kick the can down the road too far when we come back from break i want to get on the topic of intimate domain here we go again you're listening to and the old patch radio show and we'll be right back the vision of the women's energy network is to be the premier organization that educates attracts retains and develops professional women working across the value chain also known as when our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year and 4,000 of them are already members of the women's energy network across our 14 chapters members receive exclusive access to mentor job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. If you'd like more information, go to womensenergynetwork.org slash South Texas or call 855-390-0650. 
Remember this name, Oilfield Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Oilfield Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oilfield parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oilfield Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923. And visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jason Modulin, the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, talking to David and I about what we can expect at this upcoming legislative session. David, before the break, <laughs> I know we were talking about uh, wanting to get on the topic of intimate domain. It has been a topic for the last couple of sessions. I know you have a question for Jason. Go ahead. Yeah, Jason, I started lobbying in uh, the 1999 session of the legislature and we had legislation dealing with eminent domain in that session and frankly in every session since <laughs> it's really become a, a hot issue over the last four or five sessions and uh, I know it's going to be a big time consumer and very controversial uh, issue again in 2021 since we just it's very difficult to get to a final resolution on this thing so talk to us about this issue, what it involves, and, and how the industry uh, uh, sees it kind of shaking out this time. Well, you're absolutely right. Eminent domain is a hot topic every session, and, it, and frankly, it's because Texans value their property rights. Uh, the balance for state lawmakers is that we are a high growth and a fast growth state, and that requires roads, that requires electric infrastructure, and it also requires pipelines. Um, to move product uh, from West Texas and, and other parts of the state to the coast and, and refineries and get that to market. So what the oil and gas industry is doing is participating in a coalition of critical infrastructure. And that includes road builders, but also cities, counties, uh, electric uh, infrastructure. And what we're advocating for is, is an approach that prioritizes fairness, transparency, and accountability. Uh, the past two sessions, uh, we have uh, negotiated with landowner groups, including the Texas Farm Bureau and the Texas Southwestern and Cattle Raisers Association, in trying to find solutions that continues to allow um, uh, pipeline operators, but, but like I said, a number of other infrastructure uh, right. builders um, to get these projects done, um, but not open the door for trial lawyers and, and other types of uh, entities that would drag out uh, and in some cases, environmentalists stop projects altogether. So we want the ability to continue building, uh, but, but want uh, uh, landowners treated fairly, want transparency in the process so that they understand uh, what is being discussed, what's a fair offer, what are some things that they can ask for that maybe they haven't asked for in the past, um, 
but ultimately to see that these projects are able to get built and there's some certainty in how investors uh, uh, with capital can approach the state. Um, that's what we're striving for. We've drafted a bill uh, and hopefully soon we'll be working with those landowner groups and with lawmakers to find a solution. Yeah, Just, I, you know, one thing we ought to emphasize, I've been on both sides of the eminent domain uh, negotiations uh, in my life. My family uh, has a little family farm in Goliad County and and we've been adversarial relationship with some pipeline companies, but and, and a couple of times entered into long negotiations with them over, over agreements for damages and things like that. I think it's important to emphasize probably 90 to 95% of the time, uh, eminent domain doesn't really come into the picture that the, the landowner and the company are able to negotiate a, an agreement that's acceptable to everyone, correct? That, that's still the case, right? That's absolutely right. In the case of pipelines, it's some 97% yeah. of pipelines are negotiated entirely by private party and, and contract. Um, it's very rare cases where eminent domain is utilized and, and really it's for small portions um, where property owners can't come to an agreement. Um, and, and unfortunately, it, it has to be utilized in order to complete that project. Um, it's a very small percentage for uh, pipelines. It, it's utilized far more in uh, the municipal space when, right. when uh, uh, they're building a school or they're, they're building a road. Um, uh, they utilize it far more in the case of electric uh infrastructure it's, it's very commonly used and so we don't want to see a system set up where uh, that 97 percent is reduced dramatically um, because people are rushing to the courthouse uh, yeah. to, to find it out uh, we, we much prefer it negotiated by party jason real quick you had mentioned on our live show not too long ago that pipelines we're going to see there's going to be some legislation coming down on pipelines can you go into that what are, what are they looking at is it the unimit domain yeah certainly on eminent domain absolutely um uh, I, I think would be the main focus for for pipeline uh, groups this session um, last session there was an effort um, on the utility side uh, to update pipelines and, and get away from cast iron pipe and, and into uh, more modern pipes. Uh, um, uh, that was passed by the legislature. Um, and, uh, uh, and so they're moving forward. It's about a five-year timeline where all of the cast iron pipe will be replaced in the state uh, with, with more modern Isn't uh, materials. Isn't that uh, the cast iron issue, isn't that mostly like water lines, municipal kind of utility lines? This was specific to uh, natural gas and, oh, and, it? okay. and it's largely in that DFW area, but there are a number oh, of right, municipally right. owned um, utilities uh, that still have cast iron pipe. And so yeah. uh, it, it's a pretty substantial cost burden uh, that's passed on to ratepayers. Uh, so lawmakers were conscious of the need to, to build that in over several sessions, uh, several years. Uh, in order to replace that pipe. But, um, you, you know, there was a safety concern expressed in the Dallas area, um, uh, rightly. And, and so uh, lawmakers there, along with um, Atmos, uh, uh, supported that bill and, and moved it forward. Right. Well, you know, it's definitely going to be interesting uh, this session because I think that, first of all, of course, they're grappling with the deficit redistricting. COVID 
But it might also be a, a lot different session because what will not be there are uh, most of the constituents that go and visit their you know, elected official. The anti-oil and gas groups probably will not be there, you know, in, in heavy groups and, and out there petitioning to just shut down oil and gas here in Texas. So, you know, I'm going to look at it on a positive, guys, that there might actually be some headway in reference to oil and gas because uh, maybe the path is going to be kind of cleared, if you will, of a lot of factions that just go in to just push their agenda. Uh, and, and, and really, maybe the legislators will look at what is really in the best interest of Texas as a whole. And seeing how we have a deficit once again, because we're not really drilling, and it is going to affect every portion and every person in Texas, rather it's a, an educator or water, transportation, and so forth, maybe it's time that we get back to the basics of understanding how really important this resource is to our great state. And the way that we do that is when you start trying to take away, then people start waking up and recognizing you don't want to kill the golden goose. But guys, that is all the time we have for this show. Jason, thank you so much for coming in and breaking down this upcoming session. On behalf of David and myself and on the Oil Patch Radio Show, we look forward to catching up with you when session is in full swing and you can give us an update. Until then, thank you. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. 